You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. And we're reading together the first six verses. You'll find this on page 937 of the Pew Bible. That's Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Increase Mather was a New England Puritan and at one time even president of Harvard University. He wrote a book dealing with some illustrious providences of God. And his guiding principle in that book was the glory of God and the good of posterity. And of course, I believe this was simply in fulfillment of Psalm 145, which put it this way. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. With that in mind, he compiled a record of remarkable providences. We have several instances recorded by Mather of God's special preservation of the saints. Special preservation. For example, and hopefully this is not TMI. For those who are too old, that means too much information. For example, a bullet entered at Jabez's Musgrove's ear and went out at the opposite eye, and he suffered no ill effects. Amazing providence. Three women, he says, in the middle of winter, one of them being eight months pregnant, fell into a river covered partly by ice, and all three of them lived to tell about it. Or one further example, five-year-old Abigail Elliott's head was pierced with an iron hinge. And as a result, she lost both blood and parts of her brain. 
and she lived to be the mother of two children with no ill effects on her memory or her understanding. Truly remarkable providences and worthy of note. But an even more striking illustration of God's preservation, I believe, is in the passage before us. You know, having appealed to Caesar, Paul was in custody of a centurion. He was traveling by ship. A violent storm wrecked the ship, which ran aground and was broken up. All on board washed ashore on a small Mediterranean island called Malta. The island itself was about 20 miles long and 12 miles broad. It is the westernmost island in the Mediterranean, about 60 miles off the coast of Sicily. And God was in control of everything. Nothing was accidental. He ordained everything. And from a sailor's perspective, of course, it was just by chance that they arrived on Malta. But from the perspective of Scripture, the divine providence was governing every detail. God's plan to maroon Paul for three months would give an opportunity for him to proclaim the gospel. So the storm was helpful in bringing salvation to those native people. Had it not been for that storm, they would have perished in their superstition. And of course, the Bible makes no mention of their mass conversion. I'm speculating a little bit here. But certainly they were evangelized, and I think it likely that some or many of them were saved. Do we not see God's power and wisdom at work in bringing Paul to Malta? A special evidence of his providence. And the natives probably wondered if Paul was a criminal since he was being treated as a prisoner. When the viper bit, they concluded that he was guilty of a serious crime. The native people, it says, said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And superstition, as you can see, led them to identify the apostle as the worst kind of criminal. He's attempting to escape the law in his own country, but Lady Justice would not be denied. And I believe there are at least three things implied in the episode as Luke records it. First, I think this implies that these native people had a sense of deity, a sense of God, or a divine being. They instinctively believed in a higher power that overruled history. Did you catch that? Isn't it interesting that they saw in this event not the effects of chance? Granted, they were pagans, but certainly there was a sense of the divine that was present. They attributed Paul's viper bite not to bad fortune, but to the work of a deity, Lady Justice. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3, God has put eternity into man's heart. And here we find, I believe, a manifestation of the original innate sense of deity. You cannot escape it. A sense that there is a divine being in charge. Secondly, this implies that even pagan people can know right from wrong. 
After all, they're created in God's image, made after his likeness. Paul says that they have the work of the law written on their hearts. It's etched into their souls. Conscience, we're told in Scripture, is the lamp of the Lord searching all your innermost parts, your conscience. It accuses you when you do wrong, right? It excuses you when you do right. And of course, the natives of Malta did not have the scriptures. They didn't have the Ten Commandments, but they knew that evil deeds have consequences. They knew that wickedness is to be punished. There was divine vengeance, and they understood that there will be a reckoning. Where did that come from? It's the work of the law written on the heart, that we live in a moral universe. Sooner or later, as they believed, a person's sins will find him out or her out. And these truths are etched indelibly upon the hearts and minds of all human beings. The wages of sin is death. We know that instinctively, don't we? But then third, this implies that these folks viewed murder as a capital crime. They had this inherent sense of the great evil of unjustly taking away somebody's life. God said in Genesis 9, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And of course, there God delegated to man the authority to avenge the crime of murder, public justice. But even if human judges refuse to punish, the judge of all the earth will do so. And the natives believe that murderers who slay God's image bearers will pay a heavy price. So in at least three ways here, the natives of Malta manifested a sense of morality. Their consciences were alive, but their understandings were deficient. They needed special revelation. They needed the gospel. They mingled this sense of justice with an unbelieving superstition. They believed in a moral universe, as evidenced here, but they also had false and worthless gods. They know that wicked people are to be justly punished in this life, that it's what they deserve, but as Job's friends discovered, justice in this world is not perfect. Some evil people get away with it. Some innocent people suffer because of it. The Lord is often long-suffering with vessels prepared for destruction. I don't know why. I was one of them. Why was he patient with me? Perfect justice will, not, will take place only at the great day of God's wrath. That's the day of the Lord. That's when all things will be weighed in the balance and made right. Every thought, each word, all the deeds will be judged in righteousness. Well, the people of Malta. They erred in seeing the affliction here as a sure sign of judgment. Paul's snakebite 
the viper hanging from his arm, was for them an indication of his personal guilt. And how common is this error? It is one that even the disciples fell into. You remember the story that Galileans in the very act of worship were murdered by the governor Pilate? You remember that story? Jesus challenges his disciples' preconceived notions about their guilt. And this is what he says. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Is that what you think? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you see what he was saying? The victims suffered not because they were worse than others, but because they were examples to others. So again, we see that we cannot use providence as a standard for truth. Material blessings or hardships are no sure guide to reality. On a different occasion, our Lord had to dissuade his disciples of a similar error. They asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this is what Jesus said in response. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you see, such afflictions are not always inflicted as punishments for sin, like they believed. And of course, mankind's sinfulness justifies God in doing so, but it wasn't so here. He was born blind, not because he or his parents were particularly sinful. That wasn't the reason. In this case, blindness was inflicted so that God's power might be glorified. Job's friends, I think they were friends, misguided, misinformed, but I think they were friends, had to learn that affliction was not always a proof of judgment. And yet, do we not often think this way in terms of how God operates in our lives? I know I'm tempted to. We view him sometimes as the stern father, arms folded, Toe tapping, shoe ready to drop. But Jesus proves that the Father is love. His tender, fatherly care is unmatched. As for the man born blind, he was afflicted so that Jesus could display his miraculous power. And I want to ask you something. Does that offend you? Does it offend you? Do you think somehow that that's terribly unfair He's born blind, lives 40 years, just because he wants to display his power. Well, let me just say in response that God is sovereign over all of his creatures, and he has exclusive rights over them, every creature. He can make each and every creature serviceable to the glory of his great name. That's who he is. And all the mysteries of providence are intended to display the divine glory. Unbelievers are shocked at some of the extraordinary providences, as I mentioned earlier. 
But believers can draw comfort from seeing the hand of God at work, bringing you through a difficult surgery, sparing your life from the accident that took place on I-71. You see, the natives of Malta recognized the viper as part of some higher purpose, but they misinterpreted its real meaning and significance because they were superstitious. God was not judging Paul. No. He was getting the attention of the natives. All of this would open up an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. And so it seems that the viper bite was both a test of Paul's faith and a witness to the people. One at the same time. What would you do? Seriously and honestly, what would you do if in building a fire, a poisonous snake clasped onto your arm? I think I'd freak out. There is no indication here that Paul was anxious or in any way worried. His faith was strong. He was walking by the Spirit. He was trusting in the Lord's promise. He was at peace with God's sovereign plan and gracious purpose, and he was exercising faith, a test of his faith. But this was also God's way of opening a door for the glad tidings to be heard, and God knows exactly the right time and the right way and the right people to send, and you'll notice that the natives were then ready to listen after the apostle was marvelously preserved. Now, yes, they had to be dissuaded of their thought that he was a god but they were ready to listen. And their sense of morality and their sense of deity would provide a perfect backdrop. So here's the truth. God's gracious preservation of the saints is a powerful testimony to the world. No other explanation can be given for Paul's suffering. No ill effects whatsoever. It was a viper, a poisonous snake. And the Lord preserved his life, and it had a powerful impact on those natives. And the same is true in all ages. When I rehearsed those examples that Increase Mather gave, weren't you a little bit amazed? Five-year-old girl, hinge in the head, brains coming out. Sorry, TMI, no, but she lived to be a mother of two. And God graciously and powerfully preserves his people and bears witness to his glory, and the world wonders and sometimes is led to consider the claims of the gospel. So it's important for us, I think, to consider God's gracious preservation of those who trust in Christ. We're told in Ephesians 1, he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, to Jesus has been given full and absolute dominion over all things for the church's sake. As her head and her husband, he rules from sea to sea to the very ends of creation. Things rational and non-rational, things animate and inanimate, angels, devils, men, the sea, he rules it all. All things are created for him, governed by him, render service to him. 
And the end in view of his dominion over everything is the well-being of the church. It's for the advantage and the comfort and the salvation of those for whom he died. Isn't this what Paul means when he tells us Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? He works all things together for the good of those who love God, perhaps one of the most memorized verses in the Bible. And Paul's experience on Malta is no exception. Those natives needed the gospel. Everything, even the viper bite, served the divine purpose of saving the elect. And in all ages, he governs the world in this way so that believers can be saved and preserved. And I don't mean by this always physically, because every generation has its martyrs. But our eternal salvation cannot be stripped away. We're preserved for eternity. Isn't that what Peter meant? We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Not all the forces of evil combined can take away the salvation of one saint. I hope you believe that because it's a very comforting truth. It's illustrated, I believe, when the pre-incarnate Son of God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. You remember that? Exodus 3. That bush was a symbol of God's people in Egypt, and the fire was representing their sufferings. And it says, Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And the miraculous preservation of that bush was symbolic of the Lord's preservation of the church. It was a sign of his tender care and protection of those who were in the midst of suffering. And there is no shepherd as tender and as careful about his sheep as the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Elder Parkin read in Revelation how John sees Satan. He is defeated by Christ, and yet he's still attacking the church. It says, she fled into the wilderness where she's preserved and she's nourished by God. And it goes on. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, the church, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river. And it simply shows that God ordains even creation itself to serve the interests of the church. It's a symbolic affirmation of the Lord's constant fatherly care for you and for me. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Spirit describes His protection in a variety of ways. He bears us on eagles' wings. He nourishes us with manna in the wilderness. He gives nations in exchange for us. And there is not a creature in heaven or earth or hell itself that Christ does not govern. None of that he doesn't govern. All of it is under his control. His providence is not only holy, wise, and powerful, but it's beneficial to the saints. 
And so Paul tells Timothy, God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, is that universalism? No. He's using the word Savior there not in the sense of giving eternal life, but temporal preservation. God preserves the lives of all of his creatures, especially those who believe. He has his eye upon you. His heart is concerned about you. And of course, as a Savior who gives eternal life, he is the one only who can give it to those who believe. And as providence works everything for good, it does so only for that same group, those who believe. And so let me ask you this morning, do you believe in him who exercises infinite wisdom and love in ruling the world? Do you believe in him? Can you say in your case that all things work together for your eternal good? You know something, a hundred years from now, not one of us is going to be here. I guess, well, maybe some of us, very few. We're not going to be here. I wonder if there's someone here who cannot yet say that all things work together for their good. That is to say, I wonder if there are some here who have yet to accept the terms of salvation. You don't see God's work, at, God's hand at work, because you have not placed your trust in Christ. It's that simple. The Bible says he's sovereign. Not one detail of your life or my life is outside of his control. And so let me ask you, isn't it better to embrace the king and be blessed than to reject the king and endure his wrath? There's only two options. Besides the fact he is infinitely wise, he can direct your steps far better than you ever could. And he cares for his people, and even when it may seem as if he doesn't care. Let me explain that for you. I do so with the help of an illustration from Donald Gray Barnhouse. Imagine with me that you have just started watching a movie that has already begun. The scene is a cold, wintry day, and a mother, a father, and a child are on a path, and they're walking together. Suddenly, the mom and the dad start shaking and slapping the child until his teeth rattle. The child begins to whimper. And yet the parents slap and shake him all the more. You'd cringe. You might be incensed. How cruel. What awful parents they are. But you see, you've only seen part of the movie. You didn't realize that they're stranded on a rural route in negative 10 degree weather. And the boy wants to lie down and sleep, which means his death. So the parental slapping is meant to save his life. And what appears on the surface as cruelty is actually an expression of deep and abiding love. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. We only see portions of his providence. So we must always interpret providence through the lens of Scripture. And Scripture says the Lord is good. No qualification. 
So don't limit his wisdom by your way of thinking and don't limit his providence by your way of timing. That was the sin of Israel when they tempted God in the wilderness. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God actually spread a table in the wilderness? Come on. They distrusted his power, his wisdom, and his goodness, and they challenged him to give them food. Why is it that I'm so ready to distrust his providence as somehow adversarial? Why is that? Why is it that we're so prone to think that he's not seeking our good or that he's so unable to provide for us? You know, Ezekiel, when he saw that valley of, filled with dead bones, they represented a languishing nation. The people of Israel had let go of the faith and had given up hope of God blessing them. But the Lord told Ezekiel to prophesy, prophesy over those dead bones, and you know the story, they began to come together. Bone to bone, flesh returned, skin covered, and the Spirit breathed new life into them. And the Bible says that those revived bones formed an exceedingly great army. And it's just another representation of how Christ preserves his people. Even when it seems like he's gone or he's against us, even when the viper bites the arm, we can be confident that Jesus is ordering all things for the good of his people. And you know something? I'm, I'm learning this. I'm thick-headed and it takes me time, but not in a million years could I order my affairs better than Christ. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. He's in control. The American Indians had a unique ritual used in training young braves. On the night of the boy's 13th birthday, he was put to a final test before manhood. He had already learned how to hunt and scout and fish with great skill. After sunset, this 13-year-old brave was led into a dense forest where he, had, he would spend the night alone. He was blindfolded. He was taken several miles deep into the darkest wood. And when he took off the blindfold, he found himself in a wood so thick that it terrified him. All night long, every time a twig snapped, he visualized an animal approaching to devour him. Finally, at dawn, after many hours, he began to see flowers and trees and the outline of the path that he had come on. And to his utter amazement, he also saw the figure of a man standing a few feet away. And it was his father, armed with bow and arrow, who'd been there all night. And isn't that not a beautiful picture of the divine care exercised by our Lord? Unseen, but right there. You know something, regardless of what man does, God's works of providence glorify his name. 
Israel was his chosen nation, but the Jews had failed to keep their covenant, and yet the gracious God planned to redeem his people through Christ for his glory. He says through Ezekiel, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It's not for you, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So God's motivation for extending mercy is taken entirely from himself. It's not as if we deserve it. It's not as if we're worth it. But he's glorified in doing it. He redeemed us in Christ simply because he was pleased to do so. It brings him pleasure. And he uses our witness to glorify his name. Broken vessels like us. He provides opportunities for testifying to his son. Most notably, up here in front, when you young people come to profess your faith, you glorify the name of the Lord. That snake bite on Malta was an opportunity for Paul to share the gospel. It's one reason why Increase Mather wrote his book, A Record of His Works. May we not bear witness to this great work before a watching world. Let me close with one more illustration, very short. The story goes that a sergeant major, I believe this was in the British Army, was converted by the work of the Salvation Army while he was on duty in the Middle East. He was in charge of the train that ran between Cairo, Egypt, and Haifa, Israel, north-south route. And after his conversion, from then on, before every journey he took as the engineer of that train, he'd pray for the safety of the train and the passengers. Well, one dark, rain-soaked night at 3 a.m., the engine stopped for no apparent reason. And the engineers tried feverishly to fix it, but there was no mechanical explanation for its stopping. True story. At dawn, two men ran along the tracks toward the train with astonishing news. Overnight, a rainstorm had washed out a large portion of the earth from beneath the track. And the resulting hole would be large enough to engulf the entire train. What luck, said a passenger. And of course, the driver immediately corrected him. He said that I prayed for this train, and I prayed for you. And this was God's preserving mercy. You see, Providence had provided the engineer with an opportunity to give God the glory. As an epilogue, I'm sure you're curious. After 14 hours, the track was repaired and wouldn't you know, the engine started without a hitch. True story. The psalmist says, the Lord will not forsake his people. He'll not abandon his heritage. They are preserved forever. May that be an encouragement to God's people today. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you. Adore you for your preserving mercy through Jesus Christ and the power of your Spirit. 
Thank you that you keep us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We will sing your praises because we're grateful for the way you have blessed us, preserved us, and saved us through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.